Hello, everyone. This is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Ellie Lerner. And I'm Vedant. Today, we're joined by Tanner Akcham, the inaugural director of the Armenian Genocide Research Program at UCLA. During his Athenaeum talk, he discussed the national security implications of Turkish denial of the Armenian Genocide on stability and reconciliation efforts in the region today. Akcham grew up in Turkey, where he was imprisoned for editing a political youth journal and was subsequently adopted as a prisoner of conscience by Amnesty International in 1976. He is widely recognized as one of the first Turkish scholars to write extensively on the Ottoman Turkish genocide of the Armenians in the early 20th century and is the author of more than 10 scholarly works, as well as numerous articles on the Armenian genocide and Turkish nationalism. Dr. Akcham, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. So let's begin with your upbringing. You grew up in a town in northeastern Turkey near the Georgian border. What was that time in your life like, and and how did you become interested in researching the Armenian genocide? Oh, there's a big gap in between. I mean, interested in Armenian genocide and my life in my village. I was born in a village, actually. Uh, this is just on the corner of Armenia and Georgia. You can see the Armenian villages and the Georgian villages from our house. So this was so close. And I lived there until I was six. Then we moved to capital city, capital of Turkey, Ankara. But, uh, you know, my parents both were teachers. And at that time, they couldn't make a lot of money. And we were two, four siblings. And the only way to get rid of us or to... uh, how do you call it, uh, to get the family off the, on the water, they sent us to village until I was 25 or so, 20, uh, 23. So I went to my village regularly, and I still feel very much tied to that village. You know, there's an American way of saying you can take the boy out of Uh, country, but you cannot take the country out of the boy. So this is who I am. I consider myself still a village boy. And my interest in Armenian genocide actually started in Germany. Uh, I was a rebel royser. I was a political activist in 19... End of 1960s, I don't know whether our listeners know about it, there was a huge student movement in the world, end of 1960s. Basically, it started as a peace movement, and one of the main targets of that movement was the Vietnam War. So anti-Vietnam War was one of the important symbols of the students' movement, and I was part of that student movement. And as part of that movement, we get involved, I get involved in high school and then in university in the social issues of Turkey, the right of Kurds at that time, it was 1970s early, it was banned talking about the existence of Kurds. And as a rebel royser, as a young revolutionary, young man, I said, there are Kurds living in Turkey. You cannot deny it. And 
because of our or my writing about the Kurds, they put me in prison. I was sentenced to 10 year imprisonment. After one year, I escaped from prison and ended up in Germany and I applied for political asylum and continued my study in Germany. And uh, so this is how my life story. I was already interested very much in social issues uh, or the issues related to social justice, uh, equality. And uh, it was a total coincidence in Germany that I ended up working on Armenian genocide. Uh, I started working in an institute as a research assistant, and my first topic was the history of torture in Ottoman Empire. And first time when I was reading, I encountered certain massacres against Armenians end of 19th century. I read that in German newspapers or German books, which I've never heard in my life, that there were massacres against Christians. And it attracts, attracts one's interest, of course. Oh, my God, look here. What happened in my country that I had no idea about it? So this is how it started then. It turned to be my uh, PhD topic, my dissertation. And since 1990, I am very much involved in Armenian genocide research issues, and I'm one of the leading scholars now. That's super fascinating. Um, but just for a second, uh, once you went to Germany, you started discovering these discrepancies in information, correct? Uh, not directly when I uh, entered Germany. I arrived in Germany in 1978, and I became, again, politically very active. Uh, I was a member of a political organization that were fighting for democracy and human rights in Turkey. And it uh, continued in 1980s also. You know, here is the funny story. In 1976, uh, just before, after I graduated from university, I became, uh, in, I enrolled in the master program, okay, in my university. And the, uh, the field was economics. And I was at that time very strong Marxist. And every Marxist of that period, a young, who wants to be academic, wanted to go to London School of Economics. This was my dream to go to London School of Economics and to be an academic. So to be an academic was my dream already when I was arrested 1976. So I came to Germany. I became again active in the politique. And I got a lot of problems, uh, which I don't want to go into detail here now with the ideology of Marxism or with the, uh, the Turkish leftist movement, with their understanding of human rights and democracy and so on. And I put a distance to all these political activism and turn back to my, turn again to my original idea to be an academic. So I started looking for a job and found this job in Hamburg, Hamburg Research Institute. And I combined this with my dissertation. So this is how I get involved. When I started working in that research institute on the history of torture, 
The only thing that I did was to read. I read a lot about my own country also. I was amazed to learn the things that I've never heard before. And during that period of reading, I couldn't read English at that time, only German it was the foreign language. So I encountered the Armenian massacres and related other critical issues in Turkish history, which was or which is still a kind of taboo in Turkey. Can you talk about your recent book, Killing Orders, and what new insights it offers um, into the events leading up to the Armenian genocide in, in 1915? Oh, my God. It's, it's a topic of a lecture. Uh, let me give you a very brief answer. Turkish government or Turkey generally denies the Armenian genocide. We all know. What is the major argument of Turkish government? They have one single major argument, and it is the following. There is no one single document that you can show us clear, make, made, make it clear the genocidal intention of Ottoman authorities. There is no smoking gun. Actually, it is always very difficult to find smoking guns in mass atrocities. Even in Holocaust, we don't have the smoking gun. We don't have any order of Hitler saying that kill all the Jews. You construct from the development of the event that there is an intention there to exterminate the population. But putting aside that aspect, they have a point saying that uh, here our archives, several archives, uh, prime ministerial archive, the presidential archive, military archive, they are all up open, even though they are not open, but they are all open. You can go, you can research. You cannot show us one single Ottoman documents that shows the genocidal intent of Ottoman authorities. If you ask them, so what about the German documents? Germany were the uh, ally of the uh, Ottoman Empire during that. They doctored their documents. What about the American documents? Pfft, Americans had political interest, so they doctored the document. We don't trust American, French, British, or foreign documents. There is Armenians. They made up everything. So there is only one single source, they argued, that we take it seriously. This is Turkish Ottoman documents. And show us one document that make it clear the genocidal intent. And until 2000. 15, or until I publish my book 2018, it was really difficult to show the genocidal intent of the Ottoman authorities based on Ottoman documents. I published a lot of Ottoman documents and argued that these documents show the genocidal intent, but these were not killing orders. And now the story of the killing order is following. There were some telegrams out there published by an Armenian intellectual, 1920. He bribed a Turkish officials, and this Turkish official who was officer who was involved in genocide gave these original documents to this Armenian person, and this Armenian person published these in 1920. 
And then somehow originals of these materials vanished. We don't know still today where about these materials. He published in the book, this is it. And coincidentally, I discovered in a private archive of a Catholic priest who happened to be in Paris 1952 where this Armenian guy who published these documents located or put the documents. It's a library. And he filmed this. So I found the original of these documents. This was first discovery related to these original materials. And the second claim, of course, these were published documents. Turkish government argued over the years that they are false. They are not original documents. They are falsely produced by Armenians. Not original documents, fake documents they are. And what I discovered that they were not fake. And how I discovered this is in the book. This is the reason, I mean, there is a, uh, let me say that also, all these documents, ciphered documents, okay? These documents numbered. They are not written text. They are four-digit or five-digit ciphered documents. And Turkish government claimed that these ciphered documents are not original Ottoman system of developing a cipher system. Ottoman government had a totally different cipher system, and this is not the correct one. This is the reason these documents are fake. So I worked in Ottoman archive in 2016, around six months, more than six months, and I discovered that the coding system in these documents are exactly the same as the coding system that we have in the Ottoman archive today. So this is the reason in 2017, when I made this discovery first time, New York Times called me Sherlock Holmes of Armenian genocide. So this is the killing order. Why do you think these documents still exist and why weren't they just incinerated or destroyed? If these documents that I'm talking about was given by an Ottoman official officer to an Armenian guy, so this was in possession of an Armenian, and he put these documents in a library in Paris. Later, these documents were vanished from that library too. We don't know how it happened. But... The priest that I'm talking about coincidentally was in that library. He was collecting, compiling documents on the Armenian history, and he took pictures of that documents. Okay, so these are the outside of Ottoman government or Turkish government's control. Today, in Turkey, in the archives, we don't hardly have any smoking gun. What they did with the originals of these materials, direct killing order or some other documents related to mass extermination, we don't know. They might destroy them. They might have destroyed them already, or they may keep somewhere in secret. Both are possible. So how have your findings been received by the Turkish government um, and society, and, and what has been the reaction of the Armenian community? For the Armenian community, uh, simply this is one more brick on the wall of proving their thesis. Armenian 
did not need or they don't need any original document to show what happened to them. They already know. You know, the simplest Armenian explanation about the genocide is following. Call whatever you want to call it. I know what happened to my grandparents. So simple it is, actually. So the genocide, whether what happened to Armenian uh, should be called genocide or not, this is not a so uh, important question for Armenian people. They know what happened to their nation. Their nation were almost eradicated. They were removed out of Anatolia. Their wealth had been confiscated. So for them, this is one more proof what happened to them. The Turkish government's reaction to these findings, total silence, they treat this as if such a book has never been published. I published this book first in Turkish and in meanwhile it is its third or fourth edition. And uh, generally the impact of Turkish society, I don't know, I cannot give an answer. There is no polls, there is no inquiry in that regard. But I know uh, the reaction of Turkish academia I know the reaction of the students in big universities, mainly in Istanbul and Ankara. I would say that not only my book or one single book, but the publications over the year by critical scholars on Armenian genocide has changed the general attitude in Turkish universities. I would argue today that in Turkish universities, genocide is accepted as a fact in big universities. So I want to turn now to geopolitics today. Can you talk about how Turkish denial of the Armenian genocide affects relations between Turkey and Armenia, um, as well as other countries in the region? And what role does the denial of the Armenian genocide play in Turkey's national security policy? Well... We have to give an answer to the question what denialism is. Mainly, there is a misperception that we think denialism is something related to past. So there is a past event, and denialism denies the factuality of that event. So we always think that denialism is an ideological attitude, even it could be correctable. You can even correct this attitude, but it's related to a past event. It's a wrong moral attitude towards past, and it has nothing to do with current development. I think this is wrong, and we should start thinking denialism as a structure, as a mentality. So if I compare denialism with apartheid regime in South Africa, then maybe uh, it will be clearer. Denialism is a structure that produces certain policies like apartheid's discrimination against the black or here in United States, like the racism, if you consider this is a structural problem, then it reproduces the same policies, same attitudes again and again. So Turkish denialism 
is a structure and the first victim of these denialist policies in Turkey are the minorities. The Kurds today, Alevites, other small religious group, and the Christians and the Jews, these were still not considered equal citizens of Turkey. There is a daily discrimination and today's regime I would call is very close to an apartheid regime. Just an example, even though the number of Christians and the Jews is less than maybe 1%, let's say 1% in Turkish population because of the decades of extermination and persecution of this group. By the way, when Turkish Republic was established, the percentage of the Christians and Jews were around 10%. So over the years, they systematically they were persecuted as a result of these denialist policies, and today they are less than 1%. But over the 100 year of Turkish history, we don't have one Christian high-ranking bureaucrat in this society. Nobody, not in military, not in bureaucracy, not in government, nowhere. And even we had cases if a military official officer marries a Christian, he is dismissed from the military. So the first target of Turkish denialism is the minorities in Turkey. So that we don't have a democratic structure in Turkey because of this denialism. This is my argument. So denialism continues in the form of an autocratic an authoritarian regime, not creating equality in the society. This is number one. So, of course, it has direct impact on Turkey's relations with neighbors. You know, there is a general rule. If you made a mistake, okay, if you make a mistake, and if you don't accept your mistake, and you say that, I don't, I didn't make any wrong, I'm right, then this means there is a potentiality that you will repeat this mistake because you consider that not as a mistake. So Turkey's relation with its neighbors can be resembled to that example. Turkey believes that it doesn't or it didn't make any wrongdoing in the past. And this is for Syrians, Lebanese, for Armenians, for Georgians, for all other neighbors, for Greeks. This means there is a potentiality that the Turkey can continue its aggressive policies, which Turkey is doing today. In Syria, they militarily already invaded a certain part. If Russia hadn't stopped Turkey, Turkey would have invaded maybe the half of the Syria with the aggressive expansionist policies. And today, Turkey supports Azerbaijan's aggression towards Armenia. So there is a direct continuity. Thank you so much for your insight and con general contribution to the academic community. But um, if we zoom back into your personal life for a moment, I think our viewers would be curious about what it was like in prison. And you mentioned an escape too. I think most of the listeners 
uh, watch the movie or heard the movie Midnight Express. This is a very famous movie about the Turkish prison experience of an American guy. Uh, ex, I mean, portrays the Turkish prison as hell. So, as somebody spent enough time in Turkish prison and in Germany, in German prison, I can, I'm in a position to make certain comparisons. In, you have to make a distinction between different prisons in Turkey. We have military prisons, which are very infamous, especially after every military coup d'etat. By the way, almost every 10 years, there had been military coup d'etats in Turkey. 1960-1970-1980-1997-2016. Infamous in Turkey, and today there are really uh, documentaries about these prisons. I just give you an example in Diyarbakir, where mostly the Kurdish prisoners were held. The number of that maybe more than hundred. They tortured people in prison to death. They burned prisoner alive. So the when I'm talking about my experience, I want to put this military prison experience aside. I was in civilian prison, and it was very, how do you call it, lax, very really relaxed, mm-hmm. because we were a group of political prisoners, and we were in a better condition. There was no food, but we were able to bring the food from outside. And uh, we call it, in my time, we used to call it prisons as a second university because we read a lot, we discussed a lot, and the prison experience was a kind of a university for me. I read a lot, and there was not regular torture or... I would argue the Turkish prisons of my time was better than the German prison that I experienced. Because German prison, I mean, material basis was wonderful. You could take a bath at once in a week or two times in a week. In Turkish prison, you could hardly get the possibility to get a bath or something like that. Maybe every three months once or something like that. But... uh, the German prison based on isolationism. You were isolated to- totally. But it's very normal for German culture. You know, in German prison, German prisoners were fighting with each other to get the one man, one single person room because they thought it's better for them. And the Turks, I met a lot of Turks in German prison, they were fighting to get together because of the social understanding, the social life. So Turkish prison was a university for me. I learned a lot. 
Well, great. I have one last question. Our time Maybe I'll, I'll, how I escaped from prison. You, this was the question. We dug a tunnel. This is a topic of a movie, and I am very much interested that my life will be made a movie. So it's <laughs> it's it's a long story. We dug a tunnel. It's a long story for itself. So. Actually, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today. Thank you so much, Taner Akcham, for all of your insights. And to our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you so much.